Hey guys, what's going on? This is Father Matt, and uh, we're here to talk today about Frank Sheeds and Map of Life Chapter 8, which is entitled Truth, the Mystery of the Trinity. Just going to warn you, this is a difficult chapter, probably the most difficult in the book. Uh, if you have any particular questions, please do not hesitate to shoot me an email. I am more than happy to answer them. Sheed uh, is going to talk about two topics in this this chapter. Uh, the chapter is called The Mystery of the Trinity. He's going to talk about mystery in the theological sense of the word and the greatest mystery of them all, the Holy Trinity. Okay, So when we, uh, when we use the word mystery in theology, we don't mean a truth of which we cannot know anything. We mean a truth um, of which we cannot know everything. Okay, So mystery in the theological sense is a truth that we can't know everything about. Um, really, when it comes to God, who is infinite, and we who are finite, there's inevitably, going, there's inevitably going to be some element of mystery. There's a basic idea behind this chapter that will make things a lot easier. Our infinite human concepts, our infinite human intellect, can adequately grasp the mysteries revealed by God. Yet, because our human concepts, our human intellect are finite, we can never exhaustively or comprehensively understand these mysteries re revealed by God. All right? So we can grasp an adequate meaning of the mysteries God reveals. We can't exhaust our understanding of that mystery. Okay? If we couldn't adequately uh, grasp them, there, there's no point in revealing them. Right? We can adequately grasp uh, what these mysteries mean. All right. Um, so he talks about, he goes on to talk about how divine, uh, divine mystery, mystery in a theological sense seems like a contradiction. And he offers two examples, transubstantiation, which describes what happens at the consecration at mass when the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood. The substance of bread and wine is changed into the substance of Jesus Christ, really, truly, and substantially, body, blood, soul, and divinity. While the accidents remain, accidents in the philosophical sense of the word, uh, which would refer to things like color and taste and size and texture. All right, so the appearance of bread and wine, the taste of bread and wine, uh, the smell of bread and wine remain, but the substance has been changed into the substance of Jesus Christ, really and truly, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Our senses tell us it is bread. This is the contradiction, the apparent contradiction. Our senses tell us it is bread, yet uh, faith supplies where our senses fail, and we know it is truly the body of Christ. Okay, the second example is the Holy Trinity, which we'll talk about in a moment. But but he 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 spends a couple of paragraphs just talking about apparent contradictions. All right, so when something appears to be contradictory, all right, assuming we correctly understand uh, the two seemingly contradictory uh, premises premises or statements, right? When two things appear to be contradictory, one of two things is possible, okay? Either the statements may in fact be irreconcilable or the reconciliation may be at a depth to which the mind cannot pierce, all right? His point here uh, when it comes to religious mysteries such as transubstantiation of the Trinity is this. It soon becomes clear that the truths concerned with religious mysteries plunge rapidly into depths where the human mind cannot follow them. It still cannot see how they are to be reconciled, but realizing how immeasurably more there is in them than it can comprehend will not assume that one of them 
must be false. So what he is saying here is that when we're dealing with religious mysteries, we need to acknowledge we are dealing with a subject that we can never exhaustively comprehend. And so we, when we come across an apparent contradiction in a religious mystery, we should never immediately jump to the conclusion that it is false, okay? Uh, we should never immediately jump to that conclusion because there is a depth to it that we can never exhaust. It's, it's like, it would be like a judge making a judgment on a case uh, without, you know, with only getting a fraction of the evidence, all right? The, no judge in his right mind would do that. He would want to look at all the evidence before making a decision. Right, And so since we can't get all the information, when we run into an apparent contradiction, we shouldn't immediately assume that it's false, okay? So she uses two analogies here, both of which I think are really good. The first one is of an endless gallery into which we can advance ever deeper to the great enrichment of our minds, but to the end of which we shall never come. If anybody's been to the Vatican Museum, I think that's what he's talking about. I've been to the Vatican Museum like seven times. There is, I have not come close to seeing everything in the Vatican Museum. Now, look, I know the Vatican Museum is finite. I know that if I lived in Rome and I made it my goal, I could go event and I could eventually see every piece of art in there. Uh, but uh, what, what he's talking about here is a hypothetical endless gallery, all right? So, so we can... Uh, you know, we can continue to advance ever deeper and receive this great enrichment, but we will never get it all. The second one is an inexhaustible well of truth, a well from which for all eternity we can drink our fill, yet which in all eternity we shall never drink to the last drop, so that we shall never know thirst. Both make sense, okay? To say the Trinity is a mystery is not an intellectual cop-out. It is an acknowledgement that we are dealing with the reality that is uh, that that we can adequately come to know that God is a Trinity because He's revealed it to us, but also we won't exhaustively comprehend that reality, and we can adequately come to know it. It's going to require some intellectual work, as you will see, to to adequately come to know that God is a Trinity. What that means. So the section on the doctrine of the Trinity, the basic truth about the Holy Trinity is that there is one God. As Sheed rightly puts it, the Godhead is absolutely one essence, one single concrete capital S something. Yet there are three persons owning the one nature, the one self-same identical nature. Sheed says that the doctrine that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons truly di distinct is the supreme mystery revealed by Christ, and he's absolutely right. It is the supreme mystery in two senses. First, it deals with the highest truth, God himself, um, God is, is the first truth, the sovereign truth, and it is the most inaccessible to our minds, even though certain elements of it can be grasped by us, okay? So if you listened to my podcast on chapter five, if you read chapter five, hopefully you did both, or at least read it, uh, but she goes over the distinction between person and nature, and he kind of does here again, and it, I guess it wouldn't hurt for us to briefly go over it if you want a more in-depth review, go back to chapter five, go back to the podcast and listen to that. Person and nature are both principle of actions in different senses, she writes. The person uh, being that which acts, the person is that which acts, the nature is that by which he acts. Okay, what does that mean? So human nature is, man, man, is rational. Man is a rational animal, Aristotle said. Thus, 
I, I am a man, right? Father Matt is a man. So in virtue of my human nature, uh, I can think, I can philosophize. It is me, the person who is philosophizing, but I can only philosophize because of my human nature, which is rational, okay? Um, if there are questions, like I said, email me or go back and check um, five and six. Uh, go back and check chapter five. Sheed goes on to write, person may be seen as the center of, and he spells, you know, he spells center the wrong way, the way English people spell it. He's, he, person may be seen as the center of attribution in a rational nature, that to which the actions of a ration, rational nature are attributed. In an infinite nature, might there not be more than one such center of attribution? What's he saying there? In other words, we have the experience of being one person in one nature, but our nature is finite. However, in an infinite nature, i.e. God, because that nature is infinite, could there not be more than one person, one such center of attribution? Uh, Sheed's point here is that it's not a contradiction to say this is possible, all right? To say that there is one nature, three persons, is not a contradiction. It is possible given that we're dealing with an infinite nature, okay? Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each one possesses the one divine nature. They do not share it, okay? You know, sometimes people look at this like a pizza, like three people eating a pizza. You divide it up into thirds, you know? No, it's the Father is God, whole and entire. The Son is God, whole and entire. The Holy Spirit is God, whole and entire. They each get the whole pizza, okay? They each possess the divine nature in its totality. The Father is God, whole and entire. The Son is God, whole and entire. The Holy Spirit is God, whole and entire. One God, three persons. The only distinction between them is in their relations. The Father um, is uh, the Father is not the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Okay. She goes on to explain the difference, and we'll get into those distinctions a little more in a bit. Uh, she goes on to explain the difference between human beings who all share one nature, quote unquote, um, and the Trinity. All right. So we have one nature in the sense that we are all human. So he uses this example of a man named Brown and himself, Sheed. Okay, so Brown and Sheed are of one nature in that Brown and Sheed are both human. They, they both share human nature. Yet there's a big difference because Sheed can't think with Brown's mind nor love with Brown's will. Sheed must think with his own mind and love with his own will. So although there is a general sense in which human nature is one, is concrete, each man has his own nature and acts in it, okay? By contrast, with the three persons of the Holy Trinity, this is not the case. There is one divine nature, one divine mind, one divine will. The three persons each use the one mind to know, the one will to love with, for there is but one absolute divine nature. Thus, there are not three gods, but one God. The three persons then are not separate, but distinct. Okay, so they aren't separate, they're distinct. What kind of distinctions? Well, I said uh, there's a distinction of relations. The Father is neither the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Little more in depth with that. The Son proceeds from the Father by generation. 
And we got to stop right here, and, and she she does because he he points out that our our language um, our language really stumbles when it comes to describing the relations in the Trinity because the Son is what he is begotten, not made, consubstantial of the Father from all eternity. The Father, this is important. The Father is not quote unquote older than the Son nor did he exist before the Son. She points out the relation of paternity in the Godhead is not modeled on human paternity. All of this is to say that time plays no role in the procession of the Son from the Father. Generation here simply means the origin of a living thing from another living thing by communication of substance. In human relations, it's different, right? We are finite creatures, and so time plays a role, and a human father is older than a human son. But in an infinite being to whom time is not, um, doesn't play any role, there is no such requirement. God the Father eternally generates the Son, who is thus co-eternal, and as a consequence of likeness in nature, where the nature is infinite, co-equal. Okay, so the Son is co-eternal, co-equal, uh, begotten, not made, consubstantial. All right. She then uses another um, uh, traditional tried and true analogy: the Son as Word. Okay. So let me break this down. We have the first person, a thinker who thinks. What is produced by the act of thinking? What he calls the term of the act is a thought. Thinkers think, produce thoughts. Okay? With humans, our thought is more or less adequate to the object we are thinking about. What he is saying there is when we are thinking about something, we, uh, we have a more or less accurate thought about it. Um, you know, maybe I'm really biased against the state of Missouri and the city of St. Louis, so I think it's a dumpster fire of a city. Uh, and, you know, St. Louisans would say that isn't accurate, that that is not how it is in reality. Or maybe I think the Royals will win this World Series this year if we ever get to play baseball. Most pundits would agree the Royals are at least a few years away from contending and my bias could color my thoughts such that it's pretty far from reality. Okay, so our thoughts are more or less accurate. Um, and and um, But with God, who is omniscient, all-knowing, and whose intelligence is infinite, the thought is absolutely adequate to the object. Okay, God's thought is of himself. And since it is absolutely adequate, it is the perfect image of himself. And so um, living, co-eternal, equal in all perfections, a person. Thus, even more clearly than sonship, this notion of the word shows the second person is the perfect image of the first, shows also how there is no new nature produced, for there is no more complete oneness of nature than that which exists between thinker and thought, writes Frank Sheed. Okay, now we, we get to uh, between the Father and Son, there is love. Uh, and this is how we get to the Holy Spirit. But, but uh, she tells us here that we must proceed with the greatest care. And this is, you know, this is a difficult chapter in the book. This is probably one of the more difficult parts of this chapter. So he cites St. Thomas, who tells us that just as thinking produces a term, a thought, okay, so love likewise produces a term within the lover. 
Aquinas says that even though love tends toward a being outside itself, yet the act of loving arouses a state of warmth in the soul by which the being that is loved is present to the affections. The state is not the act of loving, but is produced in the soul by the act of loving in what we have called a term of the act. All right, what's he getting at here? The act of love, by the act of love, what is produced in the soul is a state in which the beloved, the being that is love, is present to the affection. So just as the act of thinking produces a thought, so there is a sense in which the act of loving another produces a state in which the beloved is present interiorly in our affections. Okay? So you can think about this, uh, you know, uh, think of a parent with a child, right? You know, a parent uh, loves his or her child, and there is a sense in which the child is is present to their affections always, you know. Um, I know, it, 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 this, is, this is a difficult concept to grasp. If anybody has questions, please email them to me. How does this apply to God? Well, God loves himself, the Father loves the Son, and the Son the Father. And uh, as she writes, the term of that act of love is subsistence. Is, it, excuse me, the term of that act of love is subsistent, is a person, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, the Holy Spirit, co-eternal and co-equal to the Father and the Son. Um, she then goes to speak about appropriation. Uh, so what's appropriation? Well, God acts upon creation uh, in his unity rather than his trinity. So um, uh, yet certain actions of God are associated with one or the other the three persons, right? So, so God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creates, redeems, sanctifies, yet certain actions are associated with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. The, Son redeem, or the Father creates, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit sanctifies. This is a pretty self-explanatory section. If you have any questions, shoot me an email. And that essentially wraps up uh, this chapter. Uh, the Trinity is a mystery, which means that uh, it is something we can adequately grasp, uh, but not exhaustively. Uh, the Trinity we can know because of God's goodness, because he revealed himself to us. We can adequately grasp this divine reality. I hope everyone is doing well. Um, you know, you should be done with chapters 9 and 10 by the end of this week, and I'll have podcasts on those out early next week. Uh, God bless, and, and you're in my prayers.